Welcome to episode four of the Path to Lawyer Wellbeing in Law in Law podcast series, a production of the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing with technical support coming from our friends at Alps. Our goal is simple, to introduce you to cool people doing awesome work in the space of lawyer well-being and to shine the light on the many great things happening around the country. I'm joined today by my fantastic co-host, Bree Buchanan. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here with you today. Yeah, and today we're going to dive into a, an area of lawyer well-being that I think is both fascinating because it's kind of where a lot of... Uh, the, the, the cultural elements of lawyer well-being originate. And we're going to talk about law schools, right? And, right. and, the, and, the, and the work that's being done in law schools. Um, we are very excited to have with us a, a, a real visionary uh, in terms of thinking about law, law school culture as it relates to lawyer well-being. And Bree, I'm going to have you introduce our guest, uh, David Jaffe. Sure, and thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to do that because David Jaffe is, is a, one of the favorite people that I know. <laughs> and so I'm delighted to have him here. David's day job, he's the Associate Dean of Student Affairs at the American University Washington College of Law in DC. And I know David from the many years that he spent on the ABA's Commission on Lawyers Assistance Programs and has been uh, a leader in with that group around um, issues related to law students and looking at reform for law schools across the country around how they address students who are struggling with mental health issues uh, or substance use problems and just general well-being. He was awarded Colette's Meritorious Service Award a few years ago. And um, near and dear to our hearts is that David was the author, the lead author, the author on the law school section of the National Task Force Report. And so he's been in this space with us from the very, very beginning. So David, welcome. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Bree and Chris. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah. And, you know, the, one of the questions that we ask everybody that's on the podcast, because I think it's helpful to just sort of have the human side of this is, um, David, what brought you to the lawyer well-being movement? It's so clear that you have a driving passion for this work. Uh, what drives it? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Actually, something I've been thinking about a lot. I, I, I think I, I bring it back to two elements from my own, my personal childhood and background. And um, one of them, which I've not shared a lot, um, when I when I was 15 years old, um, I actually came across one of my siblings uh, who was uh, attempting uh, to commit suicide, um, or at least thought he was at a very young age. He was uh, 16 months younger than me, and um, I'd taken a mixture of pills uh, in an effort to join, um, not through suicide, but to a cry for help to join one of my other siblings at a private uh, rehab school in another state. Mm -hmm. uh, and I happened to be the one at home who found him. Um, found him in enough time he he was uh taken care of and ultimately did end up at this school and he's now okay uh thank you um but i think it's really something that at that age had to have stuck with me um there's there's also a history of um depression in my family uh, it goes very deep to to my grandmother with whom i was very close and and my father and a couple of other relatives and so it's something that had been sensitive in my personal life and then kind of through extrapolation, I look at these, you know, hundreds of law students who we take in at our law school and across the country every year and just wonder with all the myriad issues that they have facing them even prior to school and then 
exacerbated by everything that they have in transitioning to law school, what they must be going through. And I think that's just been a lot of what's driven my desire to, to be available to, you know, reach out when possible and, and try to be some resource of assistance. And they're so lucky to have you, David, to have somebody in that role who really gets it and is really compassionate and feels for what um, they're going through. And it's, it's evident in, in hearing you talk and the work that you do. Yeah, David, remind me how many, how many years you've been involved in higher education and, and in particular the, the, the law school setting. Sure, so, so I graduated from the Washington College of Law where I am presently employed in 1993. Uh, I spent a, a total of uh, three years in different positions with the school, four actually. And in 1997, I interviewed successfully for the Dean of Students job. I was the second dean of students at the law school, had, was relatively young uh, to have the, the title of dean, although it's never been something that I've made a lot of uh, in my title. But uh, more importantly, it was giving me the opportunity to, to work with students more on the just kind of one-on-one level. And so I, I think I got a LinkedIn uh, reminder today that, you know, 27 years of service with the law school. <laughs> that's, that's, that's definitely got to have provided you the context and the perspective to see, you know, obviously a lot of different changes in the law school setting over that, that, that duration of period of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we, we will, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but I think that we've seen an evolution of sorts and, and unfortunately and fortunately in the same breath uh, around mental health and well-being. I think it's one that's really only taken hold probably the last five, maybe no more than seven years. Um, but, but again, to the good, it's, uh, I think law schools generally are trending in the right direction in that regard. That's exciting to hear. Let's let's go back a little bit and let's let's talk about the the suffering in silence study. Um, obviously, that was a precursor to the path to lawyer well being report, right? And 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 lay the kind of the evidence based uh, challenges that I think we're, we're we're both seeing in the profession in one respect, but in the law schools specifically in that particular study. I'd just be curious on on why did you do this study and how did it come about. Sure. Uh, so I, I got lucky to a large degree. Uh, I had been thinking a lot about the fact that we did not have a lot of data around the issues that uh, those of us who've worked on the front lines with students uh, perceive to be the case around around well-being, mental health, substance use, uh, help-seeking behaviors, things of that nature. And I, I don't remember who it was, but somebody put me in touch with a fellow travel traveler, uh, Jerry Organ, who's a law professor at St. Thomas, and somebody who does a lot of work around data for the American Bar Association. Jerry and I were introduced uh, via email from a third party. And funny enough, I think we spent about two years, maybe longer, working together towards building the survey and the idea without ever, ever having met each other in person. I think it was some conference subsequently we finally had a chance to meet and exchange hugs and catch up. Jerry was interested in the same thing I was. We, we, we believe anecdotally that there are significant issues around law student well-being. We don't have the data. The only survey that had been out at that time was an ALS, Association of American Law School survey, dating back to 1993. So it was actually the time that I had graduated law school. And that survey was limited to some degree. It hadn't really addressed prescription drugs. Um, it, it hadn't looked at help-seeking behaviors as well. And so we wanted to have information. For me, the discussion is always the important part, but data is important. Uh, particularly for individuals who may not believe that the issues are actually uh, ripe or actually out there. And so we wanted to have the backing and then be able to use that as a foundation to say, okay, now what do we do? And, and, and so the survey came about in 2014. Uh, we surveyed 15 law schools, uh, 3,500 students. 
had a, just over 3,000 responses, and the numbers, by and large, confirmed of lot. You know, a lot of what those who were working ready with students, um, you know, is to be the case that there was more drinking than uh, anybody would, if not have, have anticipated. Anybody wanted to see in law students. Um, use of prescription drugs without a prescription uh, in more significant numbers than anybody would have hoped for. Uh, screening, you know, positive screening for depression around anxiety, particularly around anxiety, fairly significant numbers. I think we screened 37% positive for anxiety. Um, and then again, in the same breath that, uh, although a significant number of the students who responded to the survey, over 80% indicated that they would seek a health professional if they felt they had an issue around alcohol or drug use or mental health, only 4% had indicated actually having seen somebody. And those numbers wow. just, just, the numbers just don't match up. It wouldn't make sense if you were acknowledging in one breath the, the significant numbers that students were drinking and binge drinking and using drugs and everything else, yet not getting help for it. Um, and that had just turned us quickly to some of the other numbers, which are around the help-seeking behavior that between, depending on whether you were looking at substance use or mental health, between 40 to 50% of the respondents said that they felt that they were more likely to get admitted to the bar if they kept their problem hidden. So they, they seem to be, when you take all these numbers together, that they're acknowledging in one breath that they probably needed help based upon their use uh, in different areas, uh, but that they weren't getting the help. And the presumption is that they weren't getting the help because they were afraid they were either going to have a, a job implication or that their character and fitness were going to impede them and they were not going to be admitted to the jurisdiction that they, that they sought to get admitted to after you know three or four years of hard study and, and tuition payments and everything else. Absolutely. And you know, I shared in the first um, episode about I started having emerging mental health issues in my first year of law school. And I can remember, I mean, no way would I have ever gone to anybody and asked for help. Right. Right. Yeah, I really felt like I had to completely put out, put out this image of being, you know, on top of everything and couldn't show any chink in the armor, so to speak. And I, I got the opportunity to go back to that same law school and teach a clinical program 20 years later. And I'll tell you, it's the same attitudes. It's, you know, not much had changed at that time, but hopefully some things are changing now. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's hard, Brie. I mean, it's really, you, you think about these individuals and, and regardless of the law school where you're, you're working or assisting students, these students were skimmed from the top of undergrads, or even if they were out for a few years, the, the top from top from colleges from across the country. Um, they all want to be competitive, oftentimes with themselves, sometimes you know at the sacrifice of classmates, which, which is another challenge. Um, but they they also, as a general rule, the students tend to be you know type A. They they feel they've got you know everything under control and they can handle everything. And this whole notion of you know stigma of of needing to have things under control really, really gets in the way of these students seeking help. David, with the, the study, I think the study came out in, in 2016, right? So we're four years removed from the study. Do you, have a, do you have a sense of how things have shifted with law students since the study was done? Do you, do you have a, a general feeling for if we're, we're doing better, or are we worse, or, or are we about the same? Or what, 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 does, what do your instincts tell you? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Well, so I'll start with a tease. Um, Jerry and I are fortunate to uh, have received a grant opportunity and we're going to be updating that survey or, or surveying again uh, next spring, 2021. And so we're gonna have yet another opportunity to really see the hard numbers and see if we've made some significant changes or, or potentially slid back uh, since that survey in that time. 
What I would suggest, and I, I don't, I, I, although I'm very proud of the survey and a lot of the results from it, I don't want to give all of the credit to that. I think that, that Jerry, and I should also mention Kate Bender from the Dave Nee Foundation, who, who co-wrote the article with us after the survey came out, or the results of the survey came out. Um, I think that the schools, law schools have been trending, maybe in part from results of the survey, but just in part from being more aware of the importance of the issues, have been trending towards being more proactive than we have been. I had used the number five, seven years uh, uh, prior to you know this conversation. And, and what I mean by that is that we were at a time where uh, orientation, for example, you know, we would be told by senior administrators informally or formally that the last thing we should be talking about are issues around mental health and stress and anxiety, right? We're welcoming and entering class. And then boom, they're going to get hit right between the eyes with the notion that it's going to be a really, really difficult experience. And next thing you know, we're we're scaring them away to another school as if you know we were the only law school that you know had an issue around these around these uh, challenges. Um, that conversation has given way towards towards issues uh, conversations around around well-being, around meditation and mindfulness and yoga and other outlets, uh, and seeking help when when needed as really being front and center at orientations at I would say a good many law schools around the country. Um, so. We're not only not afraid of it anymore, but rather than being in this kind of reactive posture where we wait for a student to come in and, and either be referred by a faculty member or just realize that they're, you know, they're desperately sinking and, and really come to somebody for help at the last minute, we're doing more proactive outreach. We're saying from the beginning in the orientation, in the materials, through reminders of mindfulness meditation sessions or yoga sessions or whatever else it is that we understand that students are going through these issues and we want to, we want to try to head them off. And then of course also be there should, despite our best efforts, you know, some of the issues continue to uh, just make the, the work and the challenges difficult for our students. Yeah. I, and I'm curious how you, to the extent possible, how, how do you measure success of what, uh, what you've been doing relative to kind of how you want to create a, 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 an evolving culture in the law school that obviously prepares them for, maybe greater vulnerability and, and greater willingness to, you know, kind of let, let faculty know when they're in those challenging spots or, you know, perhaps fostering a more collaborative and, and maybe less so competitive environment. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. I, th I think it's one thing that we, I, I, I would say for myself and our student affairs office, we probably struggle with a little bit. Um, metrics seem to be becoming more and more important for schools, you know, the ability to report outcomes of what they're doing in, in, in various ways and, you know, one way one can do it is to, you know, how many students are dropping in your office, how many students you're meeting with one-on-one. -on -one. In theory around well-being, you could mark it by the number of students who are coming to a meditation session. Um, but it's tricky because you can, you can argue two sides. If fewer students are coming to your office uh, for help, then you could suggest that or imply that the work you've done at orientation are causing students to uh, in a good way to maybe seek help maybe with family or private counseling or things like that or maybe doing meditation on their own and are actually taking better care of themselves. Um, on the other hand, if numbers of, are increasing of students coming into you, you could also argue that you've gotten word out about it, that you are uh, a, a positive resource without judgment, without question. And so the students have found, you know, the credibility in your office and the comfort level. And they're coming to you maybe at a time that they would be afraid you know, the dean of students has a job to report me to character and fitness and to the bar. And so if I go and get help, you know, I might just be, you know, putting my death sentence out there for admission to the bar later on. Um, 
So, so short answer, I, I don't know, I have an ideal one, Chris. I think I just, I simply feel that if one keeps beating, you know, kind of the drum of, of the context and the conversation around this just being important and doing what you need to for yourself when you can and seeking help when you feel like it's getting out of control, um, you've just got to trust that, you know, the students are responding to you and, 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 and are getting the help when they need, either with you or, again, through other individuals. David, I know during your tenure as a leader of the law school committee of COLAP, there was a, a study published by Jordana Confino um, that really looked at what was going on with law schools across the country and adopting well-being initiatives. And this was, pub this was written uh, within the last couple of years. Can you share some of the, the most promising practices or things that impressed you that are going on right now across the country that we might um, entice some other law schools to adopt? Sure. Uh, Jordana's article was, was terrific. And it did, as you said, it did kind of follow a survey that several individuals had worked on and just trying to get a sense of, some of it was following our survey, but again, some of it was just the general sense of, we know you as law schools are, are doing better work or looking to increase your efforts in that regard. So, you know, what is working, what is not working? Um, I would say, you know, if I wanted to tease out one, and I, I forgive me, I don't recall if the numbers were as solid on this as I'd like to see them, but I actually think our faculty, uh, faculty across the board, law faculty across the board, that is, have the perhaps best opportunity to have a positive uh, input and a positive uh, effect on our students around these issues. And, and what I mean by that is that despite those of us as dean of students who like to kind of wear this badge of honor of being in the front line with law students, we're technically not, right? We're, we, we do get to see the law students at orientation, at least for those deans of students who run orientation. I'm, in my case, I'm one of them. But once school gets started, the students are really, you know, they're, they're, they're beholden to their classes and their faculty and vice versa. And so, you know, one of the, the parts of the article that had come out was, again, I think it was, there were definitely examples of faculty, you know, leading the way, but I think it was more of a suggestion that we do a deeper dive in that regard. Our faculty are held in such esteem by their students, particularly the entering students who are kind of seeing them for the first time and learning from them in these various subject areas. The opportunity for the faculty to, uh, what's the phrase, to, to uh, step, step away from the sage on the stage and just kind of you know, be, be an assistant on the side, not to stop doing what they're doing in teaching, but to take a minute in class every now and then, even starting classes with a very brief breathing exercise, but also taking a break every couple of weeks and acknowledging, you know, I know that you're hitting a peak point of the semester right now, that you're doing your legal writing class and that you're taking a midterm and this and that, you know, checking in with the students, are you doing okay? Um, reminding them that they've accomplished so much just by getting to law school and reminding them that they have the very much the right to be where they are and that they're going to graduate and that they're going to be okay. Um, oh dear. Well, having a dog bark in support of that, I, I will take 100% of the time. 100% appreciate that. Um, so I think that's one of the big areas. I know that uh, Jordana's the survey had also pointed out that a lot of the wellness programming, again, are, are areas, uh, depending on, on your school and what's working best for you, was definitely another area where we were seeing you know, mind wellness committees that, you know, invited students in to discuss what was going to work best and then giving way to these meditation sessions or yoga sessions or running clubs or just giving an opportunity for students to gather, you know, together to, 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 to talk and ideally to kind of give way to more open conversation about how they could be supporting each other.
Yeah, one of the things that's really golden is if you have a faculty member who will actually share his or her experience, maybe with depression or anxiety over the course of their career. 100%. Yeah, that does so much to, to bring down the stigma that's around this and just makes it okay for people to start talking about it. When you can talk about it, then you can ask for help for it. And that's, that's, right. that's it's, so it's, critical. Yeah, and, and we all have it, and that's the thing. And I, I try to share with students and say, occasionally I'll share the stories that I shared here in the you know podcast and go into a little more depth, but I'll also say, these things don't change. You know, you get, and some of our students are older and married, but you graduate from law school, you get married, you're dealing with, you know, raising a family with a spouse or significant other, uh, you know, buying a house, you know, jobs and things like that. The stressors continue. So it's, it's, it may be peaking to a degree in law school for students, but they don't go away. And so the real question is, what do we do about getting help while we can, while we're in a support network where others can be helping us so that we can come out the other side and be as healthy as we can? So David, you've been really central to some uh, policy initiatives that uh, have the potential to make real change in this area. And I want you to have the chance to talk about this. And one of them is around the character and fitness questions that states um, ask right. law students um, and has such a chilling effect on law students' willingness to ask for help. Uh, tell, me, tell us about what your work is in that area. Sure, I, an incredible component to it, uh, to, to the issue and chilling effect is exactly the right phrase, Bree. Um, we, th there's again a much deeper dive um, for those who are interested. I would just encourage them to uh, either reach out to any of us or to look up, you know, uh, Louisiana. I think they probably listed as consent decree in 2014, but, but basically there was a determination back in 2014 that the um, a number, well, that the state of Louisiana in that case was using questions on their character and fitness portion of the bar application that were invasive and violative of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, that they were asking questions that could not or should not be asked. And so a decision was made to, to uh, kind of force through the decree to soften those questions, but it, the determination was that they were being made only in that state because the suit was there and not federal and not not across the board. Um, some other states indeed who were already well addressing mental health questions were not having them at all. A couple of other states saw the handwriting in the wall and decided to make some changes, but there are still a decent number of states. I, you know, some, uh, you know, four or five or six that were, would be described as extremely invasive and then maybe scaling down to another 10 or 12, maybe even 15 or so. And these are states that are just asking questions that you know, most typically it's kind of the did you ever. I mean, they're asking questions about a student's health and background that really don't have a place in the current uh, reflection of the, the character or the fitness of that applicant to study law. There may be issues that occurred that were well dealt with a number of years ago, and yet the question is opening it up again and causing a student to potentially, you know, disgorge information of a very personal nature and also potentially re-traumatize when these students have been through significant issues. Um, we've, I've worked with some others. I've worked with Janet Stearns, who's my, my counterpart and friend at Miami's Law School. We've written an article recently about it. And even on the heels of that, um, we think, and some other things that were going on, we've seen a couple of states, even in this calendar year, who have rethought their questions. Uh, uh, New York somewhat famously, and although they had cited to our article, but to their credit, they'd been at work at it for a while, but they actually chose to 
to uh, modify the questions significantly after about a year, maybe year and a half of a working group. And we still hope, because that's fairly current and New York is such a significant bar, that way we may see, and we've indeed heard from a couple of states since that, that decision came down, uh, from a couple of states and their working groups that have been asking, you know, what's the, what, what information do you have? What you can provide us? Because there's some of us who'd like to see some of those changes implemented in our states as well. And, and the argument just simply, maybe I should have started with this, is if the students who are more and more, you know, savvy about looking ahead about what their future may be and what they have to do, they're looking online, they see what the questions are. If we're able to respond or if their jurisdiction is able to respond to say, we're not gonna ask questions around mental health, or, we're, or the question we're type asking is, have you, if it's an issue that is maybe within the last two, three years, have you been re receiving treatment for it? And if you have, then we're gonna be okay with that. Well, that's gonna allow those students to go back to the bulk of our conversation thus far to actually get the help they need while in law school so that they can sail through, you know, with flying colors on that application and go on to lead healthy, not only professional lives as lawyers, but personal lives as well. Great, I think this is a great time. Uh, let's take our first, uh, or take our break. Um, and then we'll talk about some more of these uh, policy initiatives that are uh, currently being uh, pushed by Colab. Sounds great. Your law firm is worth protecting, and so is your time. Alps has the quickest online application for legal malpractice insurance out there. Apply, see rates, and find coverage, all in about 20 minutes. Being a lawyer is hard. Our new online app is easy. Apply now at applyonline.alpsnet.com. All right, welcome back everybody. And we have David Jaffe with us today. And we're talking about some really exciting policy initiatives that David has been at the forefront of. And these are things that are, um, can be game changers really around well-being for law students. And one I wanted to, I can't miss out on asking you about, David, is your efforts to um, convince the ABA's Law School Accreditation um, Committee to make some changes for what law schools are required to do around this. Can you talk a little bit about what um, your, I guess, I don't want to say lobbying, but that's what it basically comes down to, efforts in this area. Sure, ad advocacy, definitely. Um, yeah, thanks, that's a great question. So, so one of the areas that we, and again, a number of individuals who are interested in this would like to see more of an emphasis on is some kind of formalized or required training around substance use and, and, and mental health awareness while in law school. Uh, every law school is part of this. So, so the ABA accredits law schools, um, it's either every seven years, it might be every 10 years now, and you have to go through a process of self-evaluation and then sharing that information. And, and there are a lot of steps and questions around standards that have to be complied with. One of, the, one of the ongoing requirements towards the completion of the degree is that students take a course in legal ethics or, or professional responsibility is more often called. And while recognizing that a number of those courses will fold in because of the, the nature of the topic, professional responsibility, uh, a session, maybe an hour or something like that around substance use, mental health, education and awareness. Uh, oftentimes a lawyer assistance program director is brought in, maybe a volunteer to tell his or her story and they're very engaging conversations when they're held. 
And so it's there informally, but informally is a relevant term. No professor is required to, to write that into their professional responsibility textbook or casebook, and no faculty member is required to teach it as part of their you know, overall assessment in that class. And since that's the most obvious class, we've kind of focused on that in a proposal to the ABA where we've suggested, or at least suggested generally, that substance use mental health at a minimum, you know, two hours during the course of a student's three or four years of education is devoted towards that topic with the suggestion that a professional responsibility course would be the most logical place. The ABA could be free to simply say that the requirement is there and in theory, you could do it as part of orientation. You could even do it prior to that, although I think it'd be a little bit too early. I think we want students to kind of transition in and get settled in and then appreciate some of the nuances and some of the things that you know might be affecting them before they hear this information. But we really feel that, that trying to build atop this informal approach and, and those faculty and those who do write these uh, course books to, to fold it in that we, we have a formal adoption so that schools are really compelled to, to work in an area that, that, quite frankly, they ought to be doing regardless. Terrific. That's a brilliant approach. Yeah. David, you've also, you've also been very involved in the Law School Mental Health Day for law schools. Um, I, 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 I think last year it was in October, which I think is not coincidence that you, you, you planned that in the first you know, six to eight weeks of, of the semester. I'd be curious to just on your, your thoughts around that particular mental health day and, and what the plans look like for 2020. Sure. Uh, uh, thanks for that. So yeah, so prior to, it might have been two years ago, Mental Health Day was being held in the third week in March. And it was a, it was a somewhat artificial uh, date and time that had been selected. And a group of us had gotten together and said, you know, it's way too late in the day to be having these conversations, right? You're at the end of the academic year. Uh, why not push something up? And so uh, there was a determination and then some advocacy to move it. It was actually a fairly uh, uh, easy lift and credit to the ABA Law Student Division, which is also oftentimes very helpful in publicizing events that are going on around it. So we moved it to October 10th, which coincides with Global Mental Health Day as well. Uh, we've occasionally had to, well, we've only done a couple of years, but we try to avoid a Saturday or sometimes even a Friday where law students are starting to check out for the weekend. Um, and what we just tried to do is, is bring some thought leaders. The last couple of years, we've done some national uh, uh, broadcasts and invited schools to just kind of, uh, do, through a webinar, to attend live, to ask questions live and have them anchored at a school. We're looking to finalize the plans for this coming October, but I would say the part that I'm most excited about, and I do hope it comes together, because it's probably a long time in coming, is that I believe the law student division is going to play an even increasingly prominent role in the event or quite frankly series events we may do a couple of presentations over a few days this year and we hope that one of them will be led by the law student division and students themselves because they really there's there's never a better moment or an opportunity than a student working peer-to-peer -peer with other students around these issues right we're where we like to say the stu law students are getting younger each year. Obviously, it's you know a joke as we age each year and still you know dedicate ourselves to doing this work. But when they stop and they see that they're listen to their law students and the issues that their law students are facing and going through, it's then when they can really say you know that's me. And it's really nice to hear for some of them for the first time, I'm not the only one going through this, right? I mean that's another area we probably should you know touch on at least lightly as well. We have students who believe, particularly when they're transitioning into school and feeling the crush of 
the Socratic method and the new language and the reading and everything else, that they're the only one who's going through whatever it is that they're going through. And I've seen so many times when I finally have an opportunity to counsel one of these students, when I will look them in the eye and say, you know, you're not the only one this week or sometimes the only one today who's come to my office from these issues. And you almost can see the burden kind of lighten from their shoulders that they're like, oh my God, I'm, 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 I'm so happy to hear that because I really thought I was the only one who was afraid to be called on or the only one who wasn't getting, you know, what was going on in class and everything else. So, so coming back to Mental Health Day, my, our hope is that there'll be at least one session that could be led by some of the student leaders and thought leaders and really speak directly to students about some of these issues and, and inspire them to, to get help if that's the issue or to become leaders in their own right at their other schools across the country and and you know, just kind of tentacle this out so that so that we're we're building on these wellness programs wherever and whenever we can. David, the um, you know one of the things that I think is is, is interesting as as we kind of look uh, into the in, in, into the future a little bit is uh, you know one of the, I'm I'm concerned that there there's just a, a lot of folks who go into law school go through law school and then ultimately um, there's a there's a failure in expectations of what practices law practicing law is like relative to what their expectations were before they came into law school right and it you know it's an expectations gap that i think ultimately uh, you know you, you kind of get through law school you got all this student debt you maybe take a job that you didn't anticipate taking, and then you kind of move yourself through a profession in which maybe you don't love what you're doing, right? And, and if you can't find professional satisfaction, some of these other um, you know, coping mechanisms then kind of, build, uh, kind of creep in. Uh, I'd be curious on just your, your, your thoughts and what law schools can do to maybe better establish what practicing law is actually like, and when, when to do that in, in, in the law school setting, and, and whether you believe that there is some notion of an expectations gap? Uh, it's, a, it's a very thoughtful question, Chris. So let me, let me take a stab at that. I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit. I, I don't disagree with anything that you said, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take maybe a step back prior to law school. I've had some really helpful conversations with our, uh, the, the counselor who is assigned to our law students through the university's counseling center. And although we have a, an absolute agreement that she cannot share any specific information about law students with me, we do have an ongoing agreement that if there are any kind of threads or, or, or issues in the aggregate that are worth sharing, maybe there's a faculty member who seems to be affecting a group of students or something going on at the school that she absolutely can share it. And time and again, when we've sat down, what she has said to me, uh, Chris, is that the, the, by and large, the issues that the students are bringing forward in law school are not law school related. Uh, they're issues that the, these kind of deep-seated issues that law students have not addressed prior to coming to law school, uh, family issues may be unresolved, you know, personal issues. There may be issues around self-confidence and imposter syndrome and things like that, but also you know, issues around relationships and and um, you know, maybe some diagnoses of depression and things like that as well, but things that students have not come to, to grips with. And then they get to law school and it's this jarring transition to start with. And then at the back end, and it's really, you know, three years is a, you know, even four years for evening students, it's a, it's a blink of an eye at the end of the day. And the student who has not sought the opportunity to work through some of these issues, which are now, of course, are being exacerbated by, you know, the tuition and the potential prospects for employment and looking for those jobs and looking for summer opportunities and, you know, dealing with the debt and making new friends and transitioning out. All these things are coming to a head. 
And so, you know, the student who's not dealing with it at all is simply, you know, they're, they're, they're not sailing through typically, they're struggling, but then all these issues are presenting themselves again in the workforce, inclusive potentially of this kind of gap, which is I haven't been able to focus on myself, let alone on what I ought to be learning while I'm in law school, you know, to make myself a better lawyer and or to have an appreciation for what it is that I want to do. Um, I think the, the, the other part to, to your question in terms of the gap, and this, this I mean, it, it all relates to well-being at the end, but I think the, the better a job a law school is doing, not only around counseling students individually, collectively, but also providing some kind of experiential, solid experiential education or opportunities, variety opportunities for education prior to the student getting out is only gonna serve the student well. And, and by that, I simply mean whether it's a clinical program where students are able to uh, work as attorney, student attorneys for a year under the supervision of one of our faculty or, or even attorneys who are in practice, or even externships or internships where the students are going out into the field and working under the tutelage of a, of a lawyer or a judge or a set of lawyers and really gaining a sense. One, it may be a subject area that they thought they were interested in and it ultimately turns them off, but they still have you know, an opportunity to pivot and move in another direction. Two, to gain some of those professional skills because for a lot of these students, they're coming right out of undergrad and really they may not have ever worked at all. And if they did, you know, the more of the kind of run of the mill, you know, retail type positions and whatnot, but not something that really immerses you in kind of the day to day, the, the exchange, the thoughtful thinking, the analysis, the professionalism that needs to be brought. And, and if you're not having those experiences in school, and Chris, I absolutely agree, you find yourself in the profession, potentially in a position that was not something that you thought you wanted to do or knew anything about, and, and you're unhappy. And, there, and there's no reason to do that. We only get a limited period of time to enjoy what we're doing and living. And if we're not making positive selections about it, we're, we're, we're bringing ourselves down, we're bringing down their, our colleagues, those around us. And, and again, you know, this is the time around family formation relationships and all, and those aren't gonna work well either if you're, if you're not grounded in, in what it is you expect of yourself and what's making you happy on a daily basis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And David, I can really tell that you, uh, like we said at the very beginning, I think visionary, you think about all of these issues so deeply. And so let me just ask in our last question, where do you stand today uh, looking forward and for our students? Do you, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Do you think things are going to get better for students? And, and what do you base that on if that's the case or otherwise? Yeah, so short answer, long answer. We're, we're as this podcast is being recorded, we're, we're living in the middle of this pandemic, or if somebody's optimistic, maybe, maybe a third of the way out, who knows? Um, there are a number of us who are extremely concerned as we head into an academic year of where our students gonna be mental health-wise. Uh, the social isolation is, the, is the, just the number one you know, attack or deterrent towards well-being. And so while we're trying to make all this progress at law schools, all of a sudden we're in this remote environment where we're staring at screens and, and looking desperately for other opportunities to engage. And, and this is gonna be with us for a while, right? For many, for most of us, at least the fall semester, we don't know about the year ahead. And so, so short-term, we're gonna to have to be looking at those issues. Uh, I'd also mention here, that we're dealing with some professional licensure issues about the ability or the inability to counsel across state lines. And so if we have students at a school or not at a school physically, but are now living in another state and taking classes remotely, we, we in many instances cannot provide them the counseling and the counseling services that we would normally be able to do when they were in person. And so that is a 
significant challenge. There's some legislation out there that, that I'm tracking and others are following that we hope will continue to relax some of the provisions that were initially relaxed in some states in the immediate uh, aftermath of COVID in March. Long term, though, and I, and I, you know, again, I hope it's a, I hope it's a, a long term, a short long term, or or a short short term where this kind of challenges go start to ebb. I think we're trending towards the good. I think what we're finding, and and we should give some credits to the law students as well. We're finding law students who are coming to law school. I want to say a little more self aware. Uh, maybe not not self-aware and immediately well as a result of self-aware, but self-aware and comfortable enough that there are issues that they need to acknowledge to get better. I feel like there have been more open-ended conversations. Uh, we've been running orientation for about five weeks now for this year's entering class, and we've seen some really healthy conversations. Um, we've received a lot of props and emails after some of our, you know, address your stress and mental health sessions during orientation that students have really opened up and really appreciated them. And so I think that the generation of students may be more willing, on the one hand, to be more open about these issues and in turn, probably more insistent that law schools are looking to address these issues. I, I know at my school, our students formed a mental health alliance and they are pushing us around a number of issues. Are we providing enough counseling sessions? Are, are the referrals appropriate if we run out of our sessions? Are we, can, we, can we make the intake a little bit easier? You know, I, on and on. And so I think the, the respectful kind of gentle pounding on the table for almost coming back to us and saying, hey, if Dean of Students, you're telling us that we need to be taking better care of ourselves, then we're gonna turn around and say, here are the things that you as law schools need to be doing to support it. And I think this is all going to coalesce in I don't know how many years, you know, I, I, I want to say three years, maybe five, five years if we we're having this conversation that I don't think we're going to talk ourselves entirely out of jobs around mental health, but I think that our students are going to be taking even more and more um, of a look at themselves and, and making these requests to law schools. And I think we're, I think we're going to be heading in the right direction. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic looking ahead. David, do you find that, do you find that that's generational in nature or societal in nature? Or what do you think are some of the drivers that are kind of positioning us for that optimism? Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, I used to say I, when, when, when I was growing up and, and probably a couple of generations aware then, around then, if, you, if, you're, if the principal or the teacher called you in his parents and said, you know, we think there's a, a behavioral issue or something that's going on with your child, you would look at that you know, adult and say, you know, how dare you accuse my child of that? And, you know, look to, I don't know, sue the school or take them out or go somewhere else. And, and the pendulum then I think swung for a period of time where, and I, I don't mean to blame parents here, but I think the notion was, you know, if my child through medication can be achieving and overachieving that the pendulum kind of swung to the other way. Yeah. Whatever you can do to help my child, um, you know, that's great. I'll do it. Let's go for it. And I don't know exactly where that pendulum is right now, but I think, I think it's some settling in the middle of a combination where students are uh, students when they're younger prior to being law students are being perhaps better diagnosed again, perhaps a little bit more self-aware or maybe the parents now are a little bit more aware of knowing what to look for and what to avoid. And so I think we're growing up a little bit healthier as families in that regard. And so I would say it's a little bit generational and maybe also a little bit societal. I mean, there's just wherever you turn, there's just a push around well-being and wellness. And sometimes it's a push back against some of the challenges that we're facing around current news and society and things like that. 
And, and so folks are looking for better answers. I mean, it can be really sobering and depressing if you're just constantly looking at, you know, negative breaking news and natural disasters and the pandemic we're living in and, you know, things of that nature. And so sometimes the best response is to simply say, I'm not going to be that person. I'm waking up every morning and, you know, eating my Wheaties and getting my exercise in and taking care of myself. And then through my own well-being, I'm looking for others to do the same. And it's, um, you know, it is that kind of, you know, village analogy. It's, it's going to take all of us. But I think we're, we're even going back to the faculty. I think as we see, not to, not to criticize older faculty, but as we see faculty who are coming through law schools where they saw some of this well-being support, they're looking to mimic that because they realize that they were served well and they want to make sure that they're paying that forward with their students as they're, you know, receiving them in their classes and their experiential learning and everything else. So, so I think it's a combination, Chris, of a lot of those things. And, and again, I think if we continue to kind of, you know, um, just kind of sound the importance of this and continue to work in various areas, it, it, it should only continue to improve. I think it's going to be fascinating to, to, to watch over the next decade how your graduates also come into the practice of law with better expectations as to the work-life balance and, and how that will play into, you know, talent acquisition by, by, by law firms and what law students ultimately are looking for out of their professional, um, the, the professional part of their journey and how that balances with their person with their personal side because I, I think the days of you know Saturday Sunday working and all that you know again some firms are going to require it but I think it's going to be very interesting that I think folks are coming into law school with better sense of what they want and that and it'll be interesting to see a kind of a clash of of generations of partners and 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 hires and how that ultimately evolves into the law firm culture uh, within the profession generally. Sounds I, I, like I a podcast that, episode. I, <laughs> right. No, I think that's, I think it's a, it's an excellent observation. And I, I would just respond to that briefly to say that I know that I have met with students when they've asked what would, you know, maybe students in recovery, students are feeling, feeling a little more confident about themselves. And they kind of say, what can I do to contribute? And I say, well, this is going to be a really big ask, but your next interview or set of interviews you want to ask about what that law firm is doing around well-being, because the more often they hear that, the more they realize that that is going to have to be the, ne the next, you know, leverage point. And if you start to fall behind as a law firm, you're going to have quality associates who are not interested in working there because they're not seeing it. Now, it's putting a lot on the law students, of course, to ask. But if you're hitting the right law students who are getting, you know, 6, 8, 10, 15, 20 callbacks for interviews, they're going to have a pick of a litter. So why not ask that question and force the hand to the firms? And and, and you're absolutely right, Chris, the, the law firms are going are gonna to have to, some of them are doing it, uh, to be fair, but they're going to have to make some, you know, critical decisions around these issues in the coming years. Yeah. Well, David, uh, I, I think our time's coming to a close. I, I, you know, I, I, I want to obviously thank you for being a, a visionary in the law school space. Bree and I do a lot of work uh, working with our state task forces around the country and invariably one of the subgroups that they create uh, within their task force uh, is law schools, right? Because I think everyone appreciates that the that the, the the law school is the headwater, right? Of of the of the, the the training ground for the next generation of lawyers to come into our profession. And you know, there's there's critically important work, as you suggested. There's a lot of issues before they even come in the law school. But but in in terms of their introduction into uh, the, the 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 law space and and the legal culture, it starts in in law school, right? And and there's there's just so many important things happening there that sets the tone uh, for, their, for their journey into the profession uh, that we can't thank you enough for the work and the leadership that you've done 
uh, within the, the, the law student culture. Uh, I know that there's a lot of uphill battles still to face, but I think that we all share in your optimism that there's, there's some your real positive things happening in that space that I think bodes well for the culture shift that we're trying to engineer uh, within the profession generally. Well, I, I really, I appreciate this opportunity and, and the two of you have been incredible thought leaders in the, in the legal profession and the work with the task force, task force and everything to come. So I thank you both in turn and, and, and again for granting me an opportunity just to, just to have this conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you, awesome. David. Yeah, thank you. And we'll be back in, in two weeks where our next guest will be Judge David Shahid out of Indiana. Uh, Judge Shahid is a, a real thought leader in terms of uh, bringing the nexus between well-being uh, and, and the judicial uh, sector of, of the legal profession, uh, serving in a number of different capacity and, and leadership roles. And uh, really looking forward to that podcast because you know, the, the judge element of lawyer, of, of well-being in law, I think is, is, is a critical part that's oftentimes overlooked. Uh, but and so we'll be we'll be excited to get into the weeds with with Judge Shahid in a couple of weeks. So thank you for joining us for for episode uh, four. Thank you, David, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks.